Hey, Michelle. Hey, Greg. You know who's awesome? Who? Eastern Script, because they're now a paid advertiser and they're just awesome anyway. Eastern Script has been preparing script clearance reports for almost 30 years and title searches for almost 20 years. From feature-length films to animated shorts, from TV series to webisodes, Eastern Script has got you covered. Go to easternscript.com where you can read their new ebook, Script Clearance 101, to find out why their work has been called the gold standard of legal research in production offices throughout North America. Once again, that's easternscript.com, easternscript.com. Hi, and welcome back to Legal Cut Pro, the Canadian entertainment law podcast. I am Greg Pang, and I am here with my co-host, Michelle Molyneux. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Greg. How's it going? It's going pretty well. So today's podcast is going to be my interview with Michael Geist, all about the amendments to the Broadcast Act. I'm very excited to share with everyone. A shout out to our editor first, Jane Too Good, who you can find at Instagram at JJ underscore Too Good. Thank you, Jane, for your continuing great work on this podcast. Alrighty, should we jump in, Greg? I'm really excited to hear this interview. Yeah, so am I. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, <laughs> I, I did the interview. I'm, I'm excited to share it with everyone because it, Michael Geist uh, was, he wasn't my uh, prof at the at University of Ottawa. But he did help me with a paper um, about defamation on the internet. And I, ha- I remember that conversation as him asking me, hey, when you're finished, let me have a read of it. And I never did. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so remember, I broke my promise. Of course, he doesn't remember that, right? That was like probably one of millions of interactions he's had with students. And this was like, what, 12 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, did a, I did well in that, on that paper. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I did thank him on the podcast. So uh, this is, uh, I, I think these amendments to the Broadcast Act are very important and could affect uh, content producers, all, you know, Canadian uh, film producers. It'll, it'll have wide ranging effects if this bill does get enacted and, and go into force, which it very much looks like. And I think there are some repercussions that have not been discussed much in the media. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that Professor Geist has brought those to light. Let's listen, shall we? Today, my guest is Professor Michael Geist, and we are here to talk about the federal government's Bill C-10, an act to amend the Broadcasting Act. Dr. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, which is where I got my law degree as well, where he holds the Canadian Research Chair in Internet and Intercommerce, e-commerce law, excuse me, and is a member of the Center for Law, Technology, and Society. He has obtained the Bachelor of Laws in LLB from Osgood Law School in Toronto, a Master of Laws in LLM from Cambridge University in the UK and Columbia Law School in New York, and a Doctorate of Law in Law, JSD, from Columbia Law School. Dr. Geis has many publications to his name, and his column on technology law issues regularly appears in the Globe and Mail. In 2010, Managing Intellectual Property named him one of the 50 most influential people on intellectual property in the world, and Canadian Lawyer named him one of the most top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada in 2011, 12, and 13. Dr. Geist was appointed to the Order of Ontario in 2018. And little known fact, Professor Geist also helped me with my defamation on the internet paper, oh geez, maybe 12 years ago. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. 
Thank you. And uh, just for our listeners, know that I'm not disrespecting him. I'm not calling him doctor. We already said, or he already let me know that I can refer to you as professor. Yeah, I think only my mom's a fan of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, professor, guys. Uh, so we're talking about, again, uh, Bill C-10, which uh, makes amendments to the Broadcast Act, amongst uh, other things. The industry actions have generally been pretty positive to this bill. So according to a November 4th article in Playback, the CMPA, the Canadian Media Producers Association, applauded the bill, calling it an important legislation or important legislation that will address the monumental shifts that have occurred in the marketplace since the Broadcasting Act was updated. The WGC, the Writers Guild of Canada Executive Director Maureen Parker stated that we have already lost a generation of screenwriting talent to the U.S. for lack of opportunity in Canada, but hopefully this bill will help to retain those that are still here. You, of course, have a series of posts on your blog, Michael Geist at michaelgeist.ca, called The Broadcasting Act Blunder, where you absolutely slam Bill C-10. So as of today's recording, you're on part seven of that series. Professor Geist, what is wrong with the Bill C-10 Act to amend the Broadcasting Act? Well, I'm glad you asked. And as you mentioned, I've been doing a series of posts that try to unpack what some of the concerns that I've highlighted. And at a minimum, I think we need to ensure that there is a robust debate that takes place with the House and then, of course, the committee. And I think it's amongst many Canadians, because this is going to affect not just the industry, but can it, but frankly, millions and millions of Canadians, of course, uh, who subscribe and rely on these services. And I think there's a whole series of concerns. I mean, one way to think about it, and one way I've been thinking about it, is I think there are a whole series of unintended consequences that are likely to arise as a result of this bill. And in many respects, I think some of the concerns that have been expressed and the things that it's responding to uh, are significantly overstated at a minimum. So I'm not surprised, of course, that some of the largest lobby groups would speak in favor of the legislation. They've been working for a number of years to convince the government to move in this direction. But I think once you sort of peel back the onion a little bit, take a look at the actual state of the industry in terms of what the data tells us, if you take a look at what some of the consequences might be from this legislation as various companies respond to the new regulatory environment, and if you think about what it's ultimately going to mean for the for millions of Canadians, I think there's a lot of negative consequences. And we'll get exactly to some of those details in a second. But I want to briefly talk about the thrust of these amendments. And it is, I think it's been quoted to level the playing field by regulating the foreign streaming giants such as Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, Spotify, to bring them under the regulatory ambit of the act. And one of the big changes to accomplish that is to make this new subcategory online undertaking. So essentially anyone who's transmitting or retransmitting uh, fine term programs uh, in the act on the internet um, is added as a subcategory of broadcast undertaking. Can you explain what does this do? Like what will be required of these so-called online undertakings, uh, at least in the current form of the bill, if it is, if they are brought under the ambit of the act? Yeah, that's a good question. And so I, I think we, we start by noting they have created this new class of undertaking, uh, the online undertaking. They've sought to exclude certain players. And as part of the analysis that I've been doing, I've, I've noted that I think it's poorly defined at this stage. And there's a fair amount of uncertainty that's generated there. Frankly, there's a fair amount of uncertainty about what will even be required. It's, it's very clear 
who the intent is. The, the minister responsible, Canadian Heritage Minister Guy Beau, talks about, you know, regulating web giants, seemingly every opportunity that he gets, by which he is referencing some of the larger internet streaming companies, the Netflix of the world. Uh, and so that's the goal. I can expand if you like on why I don't think the claims about a level, level playing field really stand up to much scrutiny. But in terms of what they're going to be required, we have a general sense of what the government is thinking. Uh, they're thinking about mandated payments to support CanCon. They're thinking about discoverability mm-hmm. requirements that would require the, the companies like Netflix to promote effectively Canadian content on their service. And they're thinking about mandated disclosure requirements to the regulator with confidential financial data and other data. That's likely what's there, but the, the legislation itself is pretty short on specifics. And, and I think, frankly, consistent with a lot of issues, it punts many of these big questions to the CRTC. And in doing so creates, at least in the short term, I think a fair amount of uncertainty about precisely what be, what will be required, who is going to be affected, who might be exempted. Uh, and it's likely, it seems to me, if this plays out over a number of years, that it will have at least a short ter- some short-term implications. And because punting it to the CRTC, as you mentioned, so that gives the CRTC a lot of discretion over the mechanics and details of how this, the amendments will actually be uh, enforced or, or rather administrated. It does. And so, uh, so for example, the heritage minister has talked about economic thresholds in the bill, trying to suggest that what they're really trying to do is go after the large players like the Netflixes and Mm -hmm. Amazon Primes and Disney Pluses, not other players. And we know, of course, that there are dozens of internet streaming services, many of which will have Canadian-based subscribers. They're not as large, of course, as the Netflixes of the world, but they've got their own niche and they serve different communities. It's an open question as to whether or not, well, it's not an open question. They will be captured by this legislation. The question is, what elements of the requirements might they be exempted from? Minister right. says there. Minister says there are eco, there are economic thresholds in the bill. There are not. Uh, that's simply just a misstatement of what's in the legislation. What he is, I think, referring to is the possibility that the CRTC could establish economic thresholds. So they could say, unless you generate revenue above a certain number in Canada, certain of the obligations will exempt you. Although, of course, I, I should note that that has the effect of creating some pretty perverse incentives for many of these streaming services who may decide that the Canadian market isn't worth the hassle. They don't want to grow too big lest they face some of these very large uh, or some, some of these regulatory requirements. And some may simply say, you know what, I'm just going to avoid Canada altogether and instead license their content to some of the larger existing domestic players, say Crave TV. Hmm. And that's very interesting about the economic thresholds. I do have questions about that just a little bit later, but I want to get back to or get to the justifications for the amendment. And this speaks directly to my audience, mainly Canadian independent uh, film producers, is that they, they, either the government or Mr. Guibault himself has stated that one of the justifications is that there's some kind of Canadian content crisis. And I'll paraphrase one of the statements, either, I, I, forgive me, I don't remember this is from the minister himself or from Heritage Canada's website, is that by empowering the CRTC to force financial contributions from online undertakings, this is aimed at addressing 
the projected stagnation and decline in the level of support for Canadian content and provide a more sustainable source of support. You argue, I believe it's in part two of your series, that this simply, this Canadian content crisis is simply not true. Yeah, I think it's part one, uh, but uh, there's okay. so many of them. All, so many are of them already that it's easy to lose track. It's true. There isn't a crisis. Um, and if we take a look at the data that the CMPA, you mentioned they were supporters yes. of this legislation. We look at, if we look at the latest data that we have from the CMPA and the annual profile study that they produce with support from Canadian Heritage, you find that at least in the last recorded year, there was records amount, record amounts of film and television production taking place in Canada. A lot of that growth, of course, is from foreign location and service production, which is important. And to the extent to which which the minister keeps talking about the economic benefits and the jobs that, that, that are created. That is happening. And that, of course, happens whether or not we're talking about certified CanCon or not. With respect to certified CanCon, that too is growing. And in fact, even to the extent to which the minister has referenced concerns around French-based CanCon, and there's been a lot of talk about that lately. Uh, the reality is, French language CanCon grew faster than English language CanCon in the, the last recorded year. Now, admittedly, of course, we're dealing with a COVID crisis still. Uh, these numbers may change for this year, but in sort of our last normal year, that's where things were at. And even in the breakdown, you take a look at many of the markets and you see a lot of success stories. In Ontario, for example, Ontario Creates, which is the government of Ontario's agency for content creation. Earlier this year, it touted a record-breaking year for film and television production in the sector, more than $2 billion in production spending. And of that $2.1 billion, to be precise, there was a near even split between foreign productions and the domestic productions. And so the data doesn't bear this out. In fact, the minister has at times acknowledged that we're seeing significant investment, much of it coming from foreign providers into the market. He says what this will do is to guarantee it and make it mandatory. It seems to me that uh, we've seen the, the competitiveness and how the Canadian market can compete in this space and that the idea that you need to bring in all these regulations which have significant costs, this isn't a freebie in terms of the implications of this legislation, merely for effectively trying to replicate what is taking place in the market right now uh, strikes me as misguided. And regarding mandatory mandating minimum, some kind of contributions or minimum level of contributions, like are you against that as a as an idea itself that there must be at least some kind of minimum or uh, like because we're talking about uh, what you you spoke about is that the data shows that there are already significant contributions from these streamers, so there is no crisis. But should there be not be some kind of safeguards that, okay, so there is a minimum amount, a regulated minimum amount that they must contribute because they might not always be contributing that level of support for Canadian content? No, they might not. I mean, that, that does, it, it seems to me that it, it's an incredibly pessimistic view of the mm -hmm. of, of the, the Canadian market itself and the skills of our Canadian creators that somehow we'd go from being one of the top three markets for Netflix investment, for example, and they've put that on the record to being a place where they no longer want to invest. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems to me we've had years of investing in the space. There's lots of factors that go into these decisions. We, of course, we know it's the talent, it's uh, the tax incentives and the like. Um, it's, it strikes me as, as pretty unlikely that somehow Canada is simply going to stop being a desirable place to invest in. Although I think that, as I say, this legislation could, could have some real implications in this regard. I think part of the problem is that 
sure, you could say we want to ensure that there are these minimums, but you've got to do so in a way that, as the government often says, levels the playing field, that creates, uh, that essentially treats these foreign services as equivalent to the Canadian-based conventional industry. And and I think there are a number of issues there. For one thing, these claims that they're part of the system, I don't think really holds up. People that services, whether Canadian or foreign, that use the internet are not using the broadcast system in the same way that broadcasters were. There's none of the conventional, traditional quid pro quo that takes place in that in that space that's that's kind of that lies as the foundation of our regulation so for example canadian broadcasters enjoy a whole host of benefits and broadcast distributors a whole host of benefits essentially as a as as a quid pro quo for paying into the system they generate hundreds of millions of dollars from simultaneous substitution policies they've got must carry regulations they benefit from copyright retransmission rules they've got marketplace protection of course they've got eligibility for funding that some of the foreign players are not eligible for and that's just some of the advantages they have and so you get all those advantages you pay something back into the system because you're benefiting from that. That simply doesn't exist for these foreign players. They don't benefit from any of those kinds of things. And it does leave me to wonder, you know, what are the longer term implications of saying we're going to treat these parties equally, but then we're actually not going to give them equal benefits in the marketplace itself. I think it raises the risks of trade challenges, which could result in significant tariff retaliation from the United States. And I also think, and this has gotten some attention lately, I think it really opens the door to the end of a Canadian owned and controlled broadcasting sector, because effectively the government has removed that as a policy priority. It's had to, as it seeks to invite or bring in these foreign-based streamers and say that you're part of this system too. But in doing so, I think it is opening the door to really what will be the end ultimately of Canadian uh, Canadian controlled broadcast system. Regarding the the thresholds that you spoke about earlier, now without these thresholds that are going to be put into, uh, supposedly going to be put into uh, regulation by the CRTC right now, and this is just a, a hypothetical, I, I just want to throw out, it's like if I host, say, programs, uh, you know, this, this, let's say this podcast, this uh, uh, audio podcast, and I make it directly available on my website, then am I captured by the act? My, my plain reading of you know, programs and transmission and retransmission of programs is that I might be. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, I think that this is not just the economic threshold issue. This is the sort of the definitions that are used here. I think it's, un- I think it's unfortunate, candidly, that the, that the minister and not to personalize it, but the minister of the department in terms of some of the kinds of materials that they've put out, I don't think have been as straightforward as they needed to be about the implications of this legislation, at least in the way that the bill has been put forward. So for example, Guibault told the House of Commons when he was at the first debate on this bill that Canadians should bear in mind that they are imposing, the government is imposing a number of guardrails, noting that user-generated content, news content, and video games would not be subject to the new regulations. Well, user-generated content, it's true. There's a specific exception for that. And so it excludes the content. It excludes the individual that posts user-generated content. It doesn't necessarily exclude sites that host user-generated content unless that's all they host. So Mm -hmm. as soon as they start moving into some other sources, it appears they fall outside of that exception. There is no exception on news content. And so, and part of it, 
derives directly from your question. When you look at the definition of, uh, of an undertaking, including an online undertaking, when you look at the definition of a program, a program quite clearly would include things like podcasters, online news services that focus uh, significantly on video. All of that's captured. It's quite clear that that will also be subject to regulation unless the CRTC again decides otherwise. And the same is even true for video games. They're captured. The government has at least clearly stated that it will put out a policy direction that will exempt video games at the appropriate time. They haven't said the same thing for news. They haven't said the same thing for for podcasters or for other kinds of video services. This approach that they've taken really does capture everyone. And I think part of it stems from the fact we all know based on what the minister has said again and again and again, that this is really about targeting a handful of large US-based streaming services that he likes to call web giants. Well, he all, we also know that if that's what you do, if you simply target literally a handful of companies coming from the United States, you really do open yourself up to a significant trade challenge under the USMCA. There is a cultural exemption in that trade agreement, but the price for that exemption, and people often don't focus on this, is that the U.S. is entitled to retaliate to an equivalent value on any sector they like if Canada makes use of that exception. People, Canadians, I think broadly ought to think of the implications of this. We've had a minister say he thinks this is worth a billion dollars a year. The U.S. turns around and says you're violating the USMCA if they're able to make that case. They're entitled to levy tariffs on everything from dairy to steel to other parts of the energy sector up to a billion dollars a year in retaliation. And we're doing all of that at a time when, as we've talked about earlier, we are seeing significant investment already take place on a voluntary mm-hmm. basis. So to be able to try to not get in trouble uh, and risk these retaliations under, with respect to the uh, USMCA, the, the federal government has cast a very wide net. But then that net, and including the, the minister's own comments about what the justifications for uh, the, these uh, amendments are, and when the CRTC actually establishes these thresholds, it could be construed as targeting, in the end, those same U.S. streaming giants. Yes, I think that's right. In fact, I'd even go further. It, it is a, it, it, in a forthcoming part of the series, I will focus on one particular section that gives the CRTC the power not just to, you know, obviously exempt a sector or set a standard, but actually also to do the to flip to do the flip or the other side of the coin by targeting specific entities for certain obligations, and so they could, if they wanted, say, Netflix, you in particular are required to do this, mm-hmm. and that ability to target specific companies, which you know, in some ways, the ministers really almost signaled it. I think raises some real concerns and really, in a sense, amplifies the the potential threat. Do you have time just to talk a little bit about the social media exceptions, Professor? Sure, I'd be happy to. Sure. For re- so regarding those social media exceptions, and this is something that I, I've read those uh, sections, um, you know, applying to you know, you know the, the users as as you mentioned, and uh, that apply to uh, non-application of the act to certain programs. One thing I, I can't get around, and I'm trying to run some hypotheticals uh, in my head, is that if I am a content creator, I upload my content to, say, uh, audio, audiovisual content to, say, YouTube, then that I am not, ca- I am not captured under the act because of the, the social media exception for me as a social media user. Is that right? Does that sound right? 
that's right. I mean, it's it, we think, although I should know, <laughs> you know, there's always a but. Uh, but and the but here is that this is respectfully a very poorly drafted piece of legislation around this issue. And I say that in part because we don't even know what a social media service is. It's not the, defined in the act. It's not defined right? in the act. So they've in, they include the term. They make reference to it on a number of occasions. There's no definition for it. If I'm doing that, you know, I'm uploading my content, and I'm also live streaming, let's say, on YouTube. Under, from my plain reading this, I'm still not captured under the act. But if I am taking that same content, like uh, with my podcast example earlier, and hosting it on my website, then all of a sudden I'm captured under the act. Now, what if I'm taking that content, uploading it to YouTube and other social media services, and then embedding that content into my website? Now, this is where I get confused, is that looking at the you know, transmission and retransmission of programs, embedding a YouTube video in my website is that retransmission of a program. I, I, I haven't read the case law surrounding this. I know that's not defined in the current act or the amendments, but for some reason, I don't think it would be. And would that just be too convenient of a loophole for me to just send or upload all my content to social media services and embed them into my website so that I'm not captured under the act. Yeah, essentially use the platform as the retransmitters opposing theory yourself. You know, I, I think what you're highlighting, and I think it's, it's, it's a really good question because what starts as I think for, for many who have been supportive of this legislation, this kind of intuitive sense of, wow, that's great. Why shouldn't Netflix be treated in precisely the same way? to choose one company, but it's Amazon Prime, it's others too. Why shouldn't they be treated exactly the same way that we might treat CTV or uh, any other broadcaster in the country? And I think part of the, part of, part of the thing that people are coming to realize as they start teasing out the implications of the legislation, both what's there, what's not there, and what is ultimately left to the regulator, is that this legislation creates an enormous amount of uncertainty Mm -hmm. Uncertainty, I think, for the industry, uncertainty for individual users, uh, uncertainty even of certainly for subscribers in terms of what kind of choice they're going to face and what kind of costs they're going to bear as part of these changes. And so while it's easy to promote legislation by wrapping yourself up in the flag and saying, hey, Canada's stepping up and regulating, you've got to be prepared to engage in, I think, the kind of more detailed analysis, the what ifs, the hypotheticals, to better understand what the implications are. And as we begin to do this, and that's frankly why I started this Broadcasting Act Blunder series, it's going to run for several more weeks. And, and the reason for that is, as I started looking at various elements of the bill, I think it becomes readily apparent that we haven't thought very much about not the longer term implications of this legislation and quite frankly, even some of the short term implications of this. Uh, and there are a lot of risks associated with this bill that come at a time that COVID aside, which of course has created a hardship for, for so many, mm -hmm. uh, this was an industry that was thriving. And, and I think we all hope and expect that once we get past this, it will thrive again. Um, and it was prepared quite, content and prepared to be able to do that, I think, without this legislative intervention. This leg legislative intervention, I think, starts raising some real questions. I should finally, let me finally note that all of this is not to say that there is no role for regulation when it comes to these large internet companies. There absolutely is. 
whether we are talking about privacy or antitrust related issues or tax policy, which quite frankly strikes me as the far better approach of ensuring that these companies contribute into Canada is ensuring both that they collect sales taxes, which they're not paying, they're just collecting and remitting from users, but that they also pay taxes on revenues generated in the country. And if the government wants to use that revenue to help support the sector out of general revenues, then great. Uh, but this kind of cross-subsidy model has a lot of implications for how the industry will function, for consumers, and I think more broadly for the country. And as I've tried to suggest, I think a lot of these unintended consequences can be have the prospect of being very negative in the long term. And I think with that, it could have these unintended consequences that could not be as good for Canadian content producers as we are hoping that it would be. I think there's a, a real risk there. Absolutely. And, the you know, this... We have some of the best producers in the world. We see it all the time, and we see it with the the enormous amount of industry uh, interest in investing in Canada and the success that that's taken place there. None of this is to say that there isn't a role for government to continue to assist. I mean, government remains one of the biggest funders in the space, particularly when you think about the tax-related benefits that exist to help ensure that the marketplace, the Canadian market, is competitive in that regard. But this this attempt to say, hey. There's free money from Netflix. Let's go grab it. As they say, nothing in life is free. And I don't think this legislation's free either. And let's leave it at that. Professor Geis, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me online at, at michaelgeis.ca, where they'll find the, the series that you've been talking about, or along with my own uh, podcast called Law Bites. And they'll also find me on Twitter at, uh, with the, ha- at the hashtag at M- or at the user at mgeist. Any reference from uh, the title of your podcast, Law Bites, to that old Def Leppard song, Love Bites? It's, all, it's a long-term <laughs> play for sure. I've, I've used that term for a long time, and I just seem to keep recycling it uh, in the, the call, as the name for some of my columns, and then I guess more recently for the podcast. I was just thinking you can have a theme song where you have a parody of the, that Def Leppard song, but uh, then you'd have to license that, right? Well, uh, not <laughs> if I use the user-generated content provision in the copyright act. There, uh, well, non-commercial. Non-commercial. Uh, yes. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. Professor Michael Geist, thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Legal Cup Pro has been produced by Greg Pang and Michelle Molyneux. Excerpts of Just Say Go, Dr. Octavio Mendesity, mixed courtesy of Dr. Octavio and Michelle Molyneux. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated on it is to be construed as legal advice. The views expressed by the hosts of Legal Cup Pro and any guests are their own and do not represent the opinions of any organization or other person unless otherwise stated. Intro sound clip film projector countdown has been truncated from its original form and is copyright 2013 Ivan Gabovich used under Creative Commons BY3 license. Outro sound clip film projector reel runs out by Stefan021 is used under Creative Commons CC01.0 license. This podcast is copyright of Red Frame Law and is licensed to you under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial CC BYNC 4.0 license. For details of that license, visit creativecommons.org. 